Psalm 139, for the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Morning, everyone. Uh, If you're new here or you're a visitor, I'm Hugh Thompson, one of the pastors here. I guess most of us, many of us here this morning are Christians, but not all of us. I became a Christian when I was 19 years old, when I was a student. And my parents weren't Christians, and they thought it was some sort of phase I was going through, and I think they hoped I'd grow out of it. But when it became obvious that my whole life was being changed by being a Christian, my mother said, going to church is very nice, dear. And these people at church seem to be very kind, but don't let this Christianity thing change your life. Don't let it take over your life, she said. But a relationship with God does take over your life, doesn't it? It does. Having a personal relationship with the almighty creator of the universe is is amazing and daunting, and and it does take over your life. And you quickly discover that you can't keep this astonishing God at arm's length. I wonder what sort of relationship you have with God. In England, people are awfully polite, aren't they? You don't show your feelings, do you? 
You don't wear your heart in your sleeve in England. You don't do that. It's not the done thing. People are very reserved. And that's all right. You don't have to be passionate or extravagant, arm-waving, dancing about relationships. But what about your relationship with God? Your, your personal relationship with God. Did you, did you really know what you were getting yourself into when you entered into that relationship, when you became a Christian? Psalm 139 stretches our ideas of what it means to belong to God. We're going to see that God is all-knowing and God is all-present and God is all-powerful. And if you're a Christian this morning, then you're, well, you're locked in a passionate embrace with this amazing, this, this alarming God. Perhaps, I wonder, perhaps you'd hoped for a tame God, a God who was there to just give you a little bit of a helping hand in your life, on your terms, a God who would basically let you stay in the driving seat. But God isn't like that. He just isn't. God is much more demanding than that and much more wonderful than that. And David starts this psalm in verse 1. He says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And the word for know doesn't just mean simply knowing facts. It's not just that, that God knows about me, although of course he does. But know here means know personally, know intimately, know through and through. It's the word, the word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the intimate relationships between a husband and wife. At, at a wedding, the bride makes and the, and the groom make vows, don't they? All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. And with my body, I honor you. It's a total, vulnerable, close-up commitment, isn't it? Scary enough with another human being. But this is the creator and Lord of the whole universe. And that's what Psalm 139 is all about. It's a prayer. It's David addressing God, and he marvels and he, he trembles as he thinks about this relationship with God. And the first thing we see here is David is saying, Oh Lord, you know everything about me. You know everything about me. And the psalm begins, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And the word for search means sift or, or winnow. So think of God looking at your life and he sees what's wheat and what's just chaff. And he sees what's real and what's just a sham. And he knows what's going to last and what's just going to be blown away by the wind. When you type a word into, I don't know, into Google or Yahoo on your computer, the search engine screens literally millions of websites and sifts out the right ones for you, doesn't it? And that's what God is constantly doing in our lives. He sees everything. He searches it all, every little corner. Oh, Lord, you know everything about me. Some, some little children cover their eyes 
And they imagine, because they can't see anybody, that no one can see them either. And I think some Christians are a little bit like that when it comes to God. They think if they're not looking at God, well, then God isn't looking at them and he can't see them. But look what, look what David says to God. Verse 2, you know when I sit and when I rise. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. And people sometimes want to say, well, look, what I do behind closed doors is my own business. What I, how I behave in private in my home isn't anything to do with anyone else, is it? But God knows it. Well, of course he does. He's God. But there's more than that. God knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And God doesn't just know what I do, and he doesn't just know what I say. He knows what I think. There in verse 2, he says it. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are like. I can't perceive your thoughts. But how would you feel if I could put up in the PowerPoint, which isn't working for my sermon this morning, but if I could put up in the PowerPoint everything you've thought this week, would that make you cringe with embarrassment? But God knows it all. When I speak, God knows if I'm being honest. When I say I want to be more like Jesus as a Christian, God knows if that's true or not. If I pray and tell God that he's my Lord and I'm available for whatever he wants, God knows if I really mean that. There's a town in Germany where each year they have a festival and traditionally people abandon their moral inhibitions and they all wear masks and they they, they, they behave immorally in ways they wouldn't do at other times of the year. And because they've got masks on, they start to think no one knows who's doing what with whom. And there's a local Christian group that put up posters around the city that week. And the posters say, God sees behind your mask. I wonder when we're most likely to sin. It's easier to sin in a big city, isn't it, than in a little village where everyone knows you. It's easier to sin when you're away from home than when you're with your family or friends who'll hold you accountable. It's easier to sin when you're anonymous and nobody knows who you are. But you're never anonymous to God. You can't keep any secrets from God. So David says, verse 3, you are familiar with all my ways. Oh Lord, you know everything about me. Everything. Does that sound threatening? Do you, do you read this and feel like, like God is, is, is a sort of spy prying into your private affairs? That's not how David sees it. When David says in verse 5, you, you hem me in behind and before, he doesn't see that as a restriction. He sees it as a reassurance. We, we laugh at the kid who covers his eyes and thinks no one can see him. And then we go and pray, 
and we decide not to tell God certain things we're ashamed of as if he can't see them. How silly is that? David says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Literally, it's you have your hands around me. David can't understand God in his knowledge. He can't begin to. It's beyond him. He says, such knowledge, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. But what a reassurance for David. What a reassurance, and what a reassurance for us as God's people 3,000 years later. God knows us inside out. Oh Lord, you know everything about me. Why is that a reassurance for a Christian? Well, God isn't going to find out something about you that he didn't know before and change his mind about having you as one of his children. You're not going to surprise God by anything you say or do or think, although you may surprise yourself by how deceitful and sinful your heart can be. You won't shock God. He knew it all already. You're never going to hear God gasp in surprise at anything you say. You're not about to disillusion God about you. He knew everything about you when he accepted you into his family in the first place. And everything was already paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. So as a Christian, we say, oh Lord, you know everything about me. And that's a tremendous joy and a reassurance. It brings me enormous security. So, oh Lord, you know everything about me. Secondly, oh Lord, you're there wherever I go. So, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God is present present in every corner of his creation. Even if you wanted to get away from God, you couldn't. Verse 8, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now, the heavens there, it means the skies. Space travel can't take you away from God. Depths means the underworld, the realm of the dead. God is there too. And David goes on, verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Now stop and think about it. The wings of the dawn, that's the east, isn't it? The far side of the sea for the Jews, that was beyond the Mediterranean. In other words, the west. So up, down, west, east, oh Lord, you're there Everywhere I go. For the unbeliever, that's a bit threatening, isn't it? For the unbeliever, that's a terrifying prospect. For those in rebellion against God, there's no escape. Prophet Amos declared judgment on those who rebel against God. He said, though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. The unbeliever is never beyond God's judgment, but the believer is never beyond the reach of God's love. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of God. And then we arrive at verse 11, and maybe David fears for a moment that somehow he might stray away from God's presence. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. But no, verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. O Lord, you're there everywhere I go, even when it seems dark. I think most Christians have times when they feel as if God is kind of distant. And sometimes that's the result of sin. Sometimes it's times of grief or bereavement or illness or stress and uncertainty or moving houses, moving towns or simply tiredness. But sometimes there seems, there seems no discernible reason. It just feels as if God has, has left us. It feels like that. It's what the Puritans used to call the dark night of the soul. But David reminds us here, however we may sometimes feel, however dark things may sometimes seem, we're never beyond God's keeping. Verse 12, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Listen, your security as a child of God doesn't depend on how you feel. It depends on what God has done. Let me just say that again. Your security as a child of God does not depend on how you feel on some particular day. It depends on what God has done 2,000 years ago. You're saved because Jesus died at a particular place, in a particular way, on a particular date in history. Our salvation isn't subjective about how we feel. It's objective about what Jesus did. Now, here in, uh, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you don't yet know God's presence in that way. Maybe you know God's there, but you don't have any personal interaction with him. Maybe you're here this morning because God won't let you alone. Wherever you go, you keep seeing the evidences of his work. And whatever you do, you keep bumping into Christians let me read you the opening lines of a poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. He wrote, I fled him, God, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears I hid from him and under running laughter. If God has his hand on you, you can't stop him. You can run, but you can't hide. Let, let me urge you this morning, if that's you, to throw in the towel, to surrender to God. The condemnation you fear for your rebellion against him and your efforts to ignore him and shut him out of your life, the condemnation was taken away when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And God won't let you go. 
So, oh Lord, you know everything about me. Oh Lord, you're there everywhere I go. Thirdly, oh Lord, you made me everything I am. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Before a baby can be seen in an ultrasound scan, before a mother even knows she's pregnant, God is at work creating and forming the new life. No one else can see what's going on, but God can. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you in the, in the, when I was made in the secret place. In other words, in the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unborn body. So a baby in the womb is not just a cluster of cells at the disposal of the mother to keep or throw away. Human being isn't just an evolutionary accident which chance and time has produced by some extraordinary coincidence. No, each one of us is created personally by God, although we don't know exactly how. And each one has enormous dignity as a human being made in God's image. David says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. About a hundred years ago, there was a philosopher called Cyril Joad, and he wrote this. He said, the average human body consists of enough fat for seven bars of soap, enough iron to make one medium-sized nail, enough sugar to sweeten seven cups of tea, enough lime to whitewash one chicken coop, enough phosphorus to tip 2,200 matches, enough magnesium to provide one dose of salts, enough potash to explode one toy cannon, and enough sulfur to rid one dog of fleas. Is that it? Well, of course not. This intricate collection of 100,000 genes... 10 billion nerve cells, several miles of wiring, 8 meters of intestinal plumbing, 5 liters of blood and assorted biochemical engineering. This marvel of design is the wonderful work of God. Oh Lord, you made me everything I am. And I have tremendous dignity as your personal creation. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And David recognizes that God not only formed his body, but, but gave him life itself. So verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So we may not know the future, but God does. And we may not know how well we're going to do at school or university or in our careers, but God does. And we may know, not know what lies ahead for our family, for wife, our husband, or children, but God does. And we may not know how long we're going to live in this earth, but God does. God doesn't just make you and leave you. 
He has plans and purposes for you, and they're written in his book ahead of time. God has set out for you situations and circumstances, opportunities and challenges, joys and sorrows, successes and failures. God knows it all. You may be going through a really hard time just now. God knows about it. God knew about it from the, before the beginning of time. God is with you in it. David doesn't find God's omniscience. He doesn't find it a threat. He doesn't find it oppressive. He delights in it. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Too great to understand. Too many to count. But wonderful. South African author called Alan Payton wrote this. Do not think it absurd that God should know every sparrow or the number of hairs on your head. He is not greater than Plato or Lincoln. He is not superior to Shakespeare or Beethoven. He is their God. Their powers and their gifts proceeded from him. In infinite darkness, they poured with their fingers over the first word of the book of his knowledge. Well, maybe David falls asleep here counting God's thoughts, a bit like counting sheep. But what matters to David is that he belongs to God. So he says in verse 18, when I awake, I am still with you. Oh Lord, you know everything about me. O oh Lord, you're there everywhere I go. O oh Lord, you made me everything I am. And then lastly, O oh Lord, your glory is everything I want. I wonder, I wonder as the verse, as the psalm was read to you, if verse 19 came as a bit of a shock, a bit of a jolt. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. And perhaps we feel this was a lovely psalm and then this bit is aggressive and unpalatable. Is that how you feel? It's really important for us to stop and think, why did David say that? Why does David want the wicked done away with? Well, read on. Verse 20, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. David's motive in wanting rid of the wicked is because they dishonor God's name. David belongs to God through and through, and, and this is about taking sides. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? Those who attack God are hateful to David. God's enemies are David's enemies. David is in, in no doubt where his allegiance lies. God is his king, and he counts God's enemies as his enemies. And David is, is horrified by those who oppose God and drag God's name down in the dust. With a New Testament perspective, perhaps we should look at God's enemies more with pity. Unless they turn to Jesus and become God's friends, then they're bound for ruin. We mustn't water it down. 
Those who persist in rebelling against God or insist in living as if God wasn't there are going to end up in hell. So pity them. Tremble for them. Share the gospel with them. Pray for them. But don't side with them. God's enemies are our enemies. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves some questions as we come towards the end of this psalm. Do I have that burning concern for God's glory that David has here? Am I dismayed that so many people attribute God's magnificent creation to to some sort of blind chance and evolution? Am I troubled that all around me in England in 2020, people are spitting in Jesus' name and dragging God's honor in the gutter. If I'm convinced that I've been delivered from hell and I'm on my way to heaven, is that all that matters to me? David's concern is for God. David's concern is for God's glory. Oh Lord, your glory is everything I want. David wants his life to bring glory to God. Look how he ends this psalm. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Well, the psalm opened, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me. Verse 23, search me. God sifts David and knows him inside out, and that's what David wants. He wants to be searched. He welcomes God's all-seeing eye on his life. He longs to bring glory to God. He longs that God's enemies would be there no longer. The first question in the shorter Westminster Catechism is this. What is man's chief end? In other words, what is the main purpose in life for men and women? What is man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So as we come to the end of this psalm, let me ask you, is that your chief end? Is it? Is it your chief end on a Tuesday afternoon as well as in church on a Sunday morning? Is it your chief end when you're out and about with your non-Christian friends? Is it your chief end when that means doing things God's way instead of your own way? Being a Christian means putting aside my imagined glory and living instead only for God's glory. Remember the the unique dignity of being a human being. The flowers of the field and their beauty glorify God, but they don't know it. The sparrow singing in the housetop glorifies God. It doesn't know it. The universe in all its vastness glorifies God, and it doesn't know it. But you and I, as God's people, can choose to glorify God in an intimate relationship with him. Oh Lord, you know everything about me. You're there everywhere I go. You made me everything I am. And your glory is everything I want. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the intimate relationship you have granted to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us when we're centered on ourselves and help us to live lives which bring glory to you. Help us to delight that you made us and you know us and that our life is in your hands. Heavenly Father, help us to have compassion for those who don't know you and a deep and abiding love for you and a desire to bring glory to you in how we live our lives for you. For Christ's sake. Amen.